named Solomon particularly in our reading plan we've been reading the wisdom literature so we've been in the Psalms and the Proverbs and the Song of Solomon last week wasn't that a blessing praise the Lord a uh, Song of Solomon and we're seeing just kind of really what God has for us through the through King uh, Solomon but today we see a, almost a climax of the Old Testament uh, the story we're going to look at this morning is as we've seen this kind of build and all the promises of God that have been made and you've seen the story of God unfold, how God is, is showing himself to be faithful. And kind of after this point, we're going to keep reading in uh, the prophets and how really Solomon is going to fail. We'll read that next week and talk about that next week in the book of Ecclesiastes. And from this point, we kind of roll down the other side of the hill looking ahead to Jesus. So this is kind of the high water mark of the Old Testament. And so I want us to see before we jump in 1 Kings as it relates to kind of redemptive history. Meaning, as we see the story of God unfold, how does this passage fit into that? Okay? What's going on here? If we remember all the way back in January when we read about the guy named Abraham. But listen, I won't re-preach all of those messages, but we've got to be reminded of this. That God promised a man named Abraham three things. He said, I'm going to make you a people. From your descendants, I'm going to make a nation for my namesake. And you're going to have a place to dwell in. You're going to have the promised land that to where you can be my people. And I will be your God and I will dwell with you there. So a people and a place. And both of those things, all that God's doing is for a purpose. It's for the praise of his name. It's not because those people are awesome, but God said, I'm going to do a work in you, although you do not deserve it, so that you can experience me and show my glory to the nations. That's that's the message of the Old Testament. We've watched some of that unfold. And we looked again at David. Remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about King David. Um, and we saw that God promised David that there was going to be a king that was going to come from him. And that rule was going to be an everlasting throne. And, and that God was going to bless all nations through a king. And so now we see Solomon and his reign. And listen, Solomon's, uh, they're at peace. So there's no more war. There's rest. They have the promised land. And they're building society around that. And they have, a, they have this place of the temple that's about to be built that we're going to see this morning. They, all of God's promises are being fulfilled here. And, that, and it, as Solomon, as a wise, good king, that all of God's promises are beginning to, to, to take shape. So we see how God is unfolding here. It's a high watermark uh, in Israel's uh, history. And so in 1 Kings, we see that God is blessing Solomon to begin to build the long-awaited temple. Remember David asked to build the temple, and God told him no because he killed so many people. And now Solomon, thousands of years later, the temple is going to be able to be constructed. And so what we see in 1 Kings uh, 5, 6, and 7, we won't read those for the sake of time, but we're going to kind of summarize that, is really the preparation for the temple. And it took seven years to complete this building of the temple. And so much of the Bible is centered around this building of the temple. And so we want to uh, survey very briefly um, those chapters. And so here's kind of the big idea of those three chapters. You ready? Nothing was spared in the planning and the construction of the temple. So here's what I mean. Only the best things were employed to build this massive structure of the temple of God. So we'll just walk through these really quickly, um, and we'll get somewhere this morning. So hang with me. We've got to do the work uh, before we apply it to uh, our lives this morning. Only the best workers were employed. So if you read those chapters, it kind of seems kind of, man, why am I reading this? It's kind of like just a historical document. But I want you to read uh, the numbers here. I want you to hear this. 30,000 Canaanites. 550 officials, 150,000 Israelites, and 3,300 foremen 
were employed in the building of this temple. That's a lot of people over seven years. Uh, very expensive to employ those type of people. Uh, only the best materials were used. So I want you, uh, if you see this, they, they didn't just go to like, you know, big lots and get some stuff. Like this was like high quality stuff that they were using. Getting these nice cedars from all across the world to build the temple. And it wasn't just enough to have wood. They had to overlay the wood with gold. It was just an enormous, magnificent, beautiful structure that they're building in the temple. Extravagant. Extravagant. Vivid details all the way down to the smallest of details mattered in the building of this building. And then also the layout was important. We, I wish we could have time uh, to spend here. I, I struggled so much studying for this sermon. Like, Can we go to all of the images and all of the, the things that are really displayed in the temple? We don't have time to do it, but I want to just walk through. If you were to walk through uh, the temple, Laura, can you show the, the image? Up there? So as I walk through this, I want you to see just a, a representation of this place. The temple is 90 feet long and 30 feet wide and 45 feet high. And as you walk in, there would have been a, a court with a bronze altar uh, there at the front. And, and then you walked in, there's these two massive doors overlaid with gold and two bronze pillars, just massive, uh, as you enter into the temple uh, entrance. And you, that led you into the holy place. And in the holy place, there's things like an altar of incense. As the incense would roll up to God, the priest would offer that up uh, daily. There was a golden table for the bread of the presence of the Lord, ten golden lampstands that represented the presence of God. This is just immaculate. All these things represent um, their worship before the Lord. And then you go into the inner sanctuaries. You see the court there as you walk in, but the big tall uh, structure there in the back, that's the, the most holy place. And no one can go in there but the high priest, and he can only go in once a year to offer up an atonement for the sins of the people because in that place is where the Ark of the Covenant would dwell. The Ark of the Covenant symbolized the presence of God, and they would offer up the blood of the sacrifice on top of the mercy seat. The Ten Commandments were housed in the Ark. It was a picture that all of our failings of the law and all of our shortcomings before a holy God must be covered by the blood. Must be covered by the blood. And no one could enter in there but once a year into the most holy place. Now, so I, I wish we could unpack all the imagery. But here's what I want us to see. If you guys remember, that this began with a tabernacle. You guys remember the story of the tabernacle? It was this mobile tent that had the same kind of point as the temple had. But you see that now they're building this permanent structure in all of its beauty. So the tabernacle was mobile. It was temporary. At the end of the day, the, the, the tabernacle was unimpressive. It was covered in animal skin on the outside. There's nothing really beautiful to look at about the tabernacle because it had to be deconstructed and moved everywhere they would go as they were wandering around in the wilderness. But I want you to see that it ended with this temple, this beautiful, permanent, glorious structure that's being built. It meant something. So we read this and say, oh, it's kind of a cool Bible story. Thanks, Derek, for walking us through that. It's a cool little picture somebody drew. But I just don't get the point. I don't understand what it is. But I, I think we can see a picture of this tabernacle and temple that you learn something about the kingdom of God. That at first, even Jesus came and there was nothing really beautiful about him. He was common. He was every day. He was a servant. He walked among us. He put flesh on. And everyone looked at him and said, you are the son of God. John the Baptist, we just sang it and read that, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. See your king. And they would say, I just don't think that that's who we've been waiting for. There's nothing impressive about him. 
but it was God in the flesh. It was humility before honor. And you see that the, in, in the temple is one day Jesus will come back as the king in all of his glory, in all of his splendor. That suffering and humility must precede glory and beauty and worship. This is the nature of the kingdom. Things are not always as they appear. This is God that we worship. And it was a picture for the people of Israel that, listen, this was the place where God was said to have dwelled. Not that he was limited to this building, he lived there, but his presence was uniquely on display at the temple. This was the place, as we've talked about, where sacrifices were made to atone for their sins. Because they knew, when you said temple, it was a realization that, listen, I cannot flippantly enter into the presence of God. I must come humbly. I must come, some innocent substitute has to die instead of me. The wages of sin is death. Sacrifice must be atoned for. This holy God must be appeased. and We can't just enter in. And that, that listen, to worship God is extravagant. It's beautiful. It, it, it's a picture that we can't just approach God any way. They would have seen it that way. But as we get into chapter 8, so that was the preparation and the building of the temple. It was a huge point in Israel's history. But then I want us to see that nothing was spared in the dedication of the temple. So let's begin reading in verse uh, 1 of chapter 8. You're there in your Bibles. And the words will be on the screen. I want us to see that the entire nation was present. This was a big deal. This just didn't happen for anything. Thousands, millions of people coming together to one place. Let's read verse 1. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel. And all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses, of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So they're a box that symbolizes the presence of God. Out of the city of David, which is Zion, and all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanian, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. I want you to see this. That would have been a big deal. This is the point. For everybody to come together like this and to travel miles and miles away to come to the dedication of this building. It's a big deal. We're getting somewhere. Verse 4, it says, The ark of God was moved, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. So we're talking about the tabernacle. There's a transition from the permanent, semi-permanent dwelling of the tabernacle to the permanent uh, dwelling of the temple. This is the priest and the Levites brought them up. And if you read the account, this was a big deal. They're celebrating the ark of God being moved into this building. Okay? I want us also to see an abundance of sacrifices were offered. Verse 5, L- listen to this. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, this, listen, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. That's a lot. A lot of animals. I want you to picture that scene. So many innocent animals being slaughtered. I mean, let's just be real. The bloodshed that that would be. The stench that would come from that. The noise of, of all that happening. Just the picture of what that is. So all the people are gathered. All of this bloodshed happening for a point. For a point. And so <laughs> this is the image of this tabernacle and the, and the temple is that the worship of God is costly. Nothing was spared in the making of the temple. Thousands of dollars spent, okay? Millions of people coming in to watch. And all the nations, this was a symbol to them that Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. It was a great sacrifice. This was over-the-top worship. 
over-the-top devotion, over-the-top sacrifice. That's the point of this account. So we read it. So, so that, that's kind of what's going on. We went through our reading. So I have wrestled with how much more do we go into there. So we're going to pause in 1 Kings 8. And I want to ask us a question. Why? Why did they do all of this? What's the purpose of all of this? We can le- read. This is a historical account. Okay, they did all of this. They spent so much money, so much time, so much sacrifices. This was so extravagant. Why? Why? Was all of this really necessary? As I was reading this and, and really trying to unpack this, like, man, this is a big deal. This was not just some flippant thing. A decade of work. Was it really needed? You know? Was it, was it really worth it? All, maybe you could say they could have spent all of that time, all of those resources, all of that money, all of those people, and you know, given it to the poor or done something else with it. Was it really necessary to throw it into a building? And I want us to wrestle uh, with that question because I think many people in this room might be asking the same question this morning. Maybe not about a temple because that's not where we're living when it's thousands of years removed. But maybe you're asking the question today is, is this worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? I'm here at church and I'm doing this. I'm singing the songs and I, I'm trying to live in community. I'm trying to be honest and try to spur one another on. And I'm trying to live marriage the way God's called me to live it. And I'm trying to operate life the way that God's called me to do. I'm trying to live on mission. And I'm asking myself the question, is it worth it? Is this real? All of the sacrifices that I'm giving, all of the, the cost that it is, is, is it real? Is he worth it? Is it worth moving your family to a place like Portland, Oregon? where they don't really necessarily want you there, and it's dark, and, and you're leaving all that you've ever known, is it worth it? Why would Josh and his family and those families leave and do that? Why would we cross our cultural boundaries and, and sacrifice greatly in this city? Why not just kind of coast along? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? And I'm reminded of a story, if you remember in the Gospels, where a certain woman came up before Jesus while at dinner. You remember, remember this story? She took this alabaster jar. You guys remember? And she broke that alabaster jar. This was cost, I mean, very ridiculously expensive. It was a family heirloom. And she anointed Jesus, remember that, as a display of worship to the Lord. You remember the disciples' response? She's wasting that. Like, she could have taken that and sold it and given it to the poor. She could have done something with it. It's a waste. Why would you take all of that, that beautiful, precious gift, and waste it to anoint Jesus? And Jesus' response was, listen, the poor you always have with you, but I, you're not always going to be with me. And he was not saying we shouldn't care for the poor. But what he's saying is, no, 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 it's right to, cut, to give everything away from me. It's right. It's right. I want us to see, though, in this story. So is it worth it? All of this stuff. But the people saw this as a joy. I want us to skip over to uh, verse 66 of 1 Kings 8 and just read this. After all of this is over, all this dedication of the temple, it says, On the eighth day he sent the people away, and they blessed the king and went to their homes. What's the word? Say it with me. Joyful. After all of this family, it wasn't, why are we here? Now we've got to make the whole trek back home. We waste all this. No, no, no. They went home joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord has shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. So listen, the temple is just one picture of worship. 
what it costs, what it is, how to approach God rightly. For them, it was the symbol of worship before Yahweh, before the Lord. But listen, the Bible is about worship. It's not just 1 Kings 8. It's not just the temple. The whole Bible, and when we had time, we would walk through and look at it, that the Bible is all about worship of the one true God. This is the point of Scripture. So we've got to ask ourselves this question, what is worship? Because this is the point of all of this. We can read the tabernacle and the temple and see all these pictures, and we can do a really inductive Bible study of how all of those things meant something, and that's a really good study. I would invite you to do that. But I'm not going to do that this morning. What I want to do is ask the question of what was the point of all of that in the first place? What's the point of the Bible? What's the point of your life? It's worship. So what is it? All right. Here's a couple of, of words that I think helps us describe uh, worship this morning. Uh, two words, glory and sacrifice. Glory and sacrifice. Now, Derek, that doesn't help me at all, but we're, we're going to try to unpack it, okay? Here's what I mean by glory uh, and sacrifice. The idea of glory, we say it all the time. We just, we, we just sang it, right? Glory, glory to our God. Glory, glory. What do we mean? Have you, ever, have you ever thought about that? What does it mean to glory in God, to give God the glory, that all of creation is for God's glory? What, what does that mean? And the, and the word glory has the idea of the weightiness of something. It's the weightiness of something. It is ascribing value, worth, or significance, or weight to something. So something is heavier than the other means it's, it's more, it's weightier, it's more majestic, it's more valuable. So if we say that we're glorying in God, that we're saying he's the weightiest of everything. He's the most valuable of everything in this world. There's nothing better than him. We give glory to God. So when we refer to the glory of God, it is the, listen, the outworking of all of the inner excellence of who God is. It's his worth on display. So if creation is shouting for the glory of God, it is saying, look, 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 he's beautiful. He's majestic. He is the greatest treasure of the universe. It is the, glory, it is the worth of God on display. So glory equals weightiness. But then the idea of a sacrifice. What, is, what does it mean to sacrifice something? Sacrifice something is to lay down something of great value for something of even greater value. If I'm sacrificing, I'm, I'm going to say no to this thing. I'm going to put this thing to death because I'm convinced that this over here is worth it. So some of you guys, you know this. You sacrifice for your kids, right? You say, I'm going to say no to certain things because I'll say no to that, although it's a beautiful thing, it's a right of mine, for the good of my son or daughter. I'm going to sacrifice a good thing for something of greater value. It's a sacrifice. This is what we mean when we say we worship God. Is we're saying that he is worth it. Literally, the word worship literally means the worth-ship of God. Worship, worth-ship. It is saying that, God, you are worth glory all sacrifice. Anything that's keeping me from you, I will gladly lay down. There's no cost too great. There's nothing too extravagant when we see the extravagant nature and glory and worth of our God. That is what worship is. And we know this, not even just true of God, but in everyday life. If I were to come to you and say, okay, I have a little toy car here, and I'll sell this to you for $500. Your response would be, it's not worth it but if i said hey i've got this brand new rolls royce and i'll sell it to you for 500 dollars," your response 
Oh yeah, that's a really good deal. Meaning, the price, the sacrifice of the $500 is nothing compared to what the thing is worth. Tracking with me? But you would never pay that same sacrifice for something that in your mind you say, that's not worth it. And so here's another way we would say worship is revelation and response. Revelation and response. When we see something, revelation, it's on display. We, we have to make a value judgment of is this thing worth sacrificing for? And what I'm going to give up is in directly correlation to what I think that thing is worth, or the value of that thing. That's what we do in all of life. So we see something to see, revelation, and we make a determination of its worthness and what we are willing to give up to obtain it. That's our response. So here's the point. If we have a small view of God, worship will always be superficial. If you have never gotten to a point where you've seen Him, church is not going to make sense to you. If you've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you'll never lay down your life in service to Him. It'll always be a duty. It'll always be a checklist. It'll always be something that you've got to do instead of, no, 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 I see Him as worth everything. And so my life is nothing. I'll gladly lay down everything to get that. If if we would pay $500 for a Rolls Royce, gladly, how much more should we lay down everything of value in our life to obtain the ultimate thing of who God is? And so if we're not, listen, I'm going to ask you some questions. Would this describe your life? Does it? Are you worshiping today? See, take off the mask. Put off the pretense. Are you worshiping? Really? Have you ever began to worship the Lord? You know that's what it means to be a Christian? It's to see Christ for who He is and what He's done. And I gladly repent of everything that I am and everything that keeps me from Him, my sin. And I gladly, by faith, lean in, throw into everything that He is. Have you ever began that kind of relationship with God? To where you see Him as everything and you're willing to follow Him as Savior and Lord and the greatest treasure of your life. That's what it means to follow Jesus. But for the rest of us, if that has happened, has your worship began to fade? Has it lost its luster? Is your heart bored? Are you apathetic toward the things of God? Are you calloused? Is your worship empty? Are you, have you gotten lazy in your pursuit of Him? I want to read a, a very, very convicting passage from our Savior Himself. Matthew chapter 15, the words will be on the screen. He's talking to the Pharisees, religious people. They would have been at church with us this morning, okay? It says this, This people honors me with their lips. Sing the songs, confess Jesus as Lord with our mouth, trying to live the best life we can. They honor me with their lips. But their heart who they really are, their affections, the delight, the awe, their heart is far from me. Would that describe you this morning? You say, I'm not necessarily walking away, I'm still honoring God with my lips, but something's happened in my heart. My heart's far from God. Verse 9 says, in vain do they worship me. Man, that, that ought to terrify us, church. You say, we're here, Derek, of course we're worshiping. No, no, no. In vain, meaning empty, meaningless, nothing. Do you, you're trying to show worship of God, but you're doing it in an empty way. It's not really costing you anything. It's not really 
from a heart of just, yes, Lord, you are what I need. I'm going to read another passage. We'll get there as we read the story, but I want us to just jump in to see it this morning. Malachi chapter 1. The prophet, after, so the temple's been built, and they're offering up sacrifices, but years down the road, we're going to look ahead a little bit, but notice verse 6, it says, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who would have been in this temple offering up these sacrifices, who despise my name. So the priest would respond back, but you say, how have we despised your name? Maybe you're asking that this morning, it's like, whoa, get off, how's my worship empty? This is what he says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun, notice what God's about. This is his his glory to its setting. My name will be great among the nations because he is the greatest treasure of the universe. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. When you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its fruit may be despised. But you say, Notice, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has made a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Some heavy words. You know what he's saying to us this morning? Listen, they, they were going in and saying, listen, to give the best lamb and the best sacrifice costs too much. I've got this guy that's blind over here. I got one that's lame. I got one that's sick. I can't really, it's not really useful to me. So I'll sacrifice that instead. So instead of bringing the best to God, sacrificing greatly before the Lord, they said, no, no, I'm going to give him my leftovers. I'm going to give the polluted offering. I'm going to give the blemished things before the Lord. And God says, no, no, no. I will not accept that offering. Why? Because God's just been cranky and having a bad day? No, we're saying, no, no, no. Because he's everything. He's beautiful. And the sacrifice of our praise should reflect the greatness of our God. It's not a waste. It's not a waste. It's worth it. He is worth it. The worship of God became a ritual to them. It was empty. And we're foolish to think that because we're living our lives in such a way that we would think, oh, God's happy with what we're doing. But really ask yourself this question. Are you worshiping? Does the sacrifice of your life match what we would all say is the beauty of his name and who he is? So what do we do? How do we worship rightly? How do we confess our empty, vain offerings, our leftovers to God? And I, I, I just, it's such a convicting thing what it says in verse 13 of this passage. It says, what a weariness this is. They've actually, not only they're not giving their best, but even that act was like, man, this is a, a waste. This is a pain. Why do I got to go to the priest and give him up my thing? It seems like this is all unnecessary. Have you gotten to the point of that's true in your heart? Like, reading my Bible, like, what a weariness this is. 
Coming to church, man, I could be in so many different places. You're talking about going to, to be in community and actually make disciples? What a weariness this is. I, I, I just don't want to put myself out there like that. We're saying, no, no, no. The only thing that's going to make this change in us. We have a couple options. The church has always said, we'll just try harder. Show up. Start reading. What I'm saying is, no, no, no. Don't do that. Because it'll become an empty ritual sacrifice just like what they had. We do not need to try harder. We need to see him. We need to see him. We need to see him. So listen, the problem is not with his beauty. It's not. The problem is not that he hasn't revealed himself. He's everywhere. He's shouting at you this morning. Maybe that's why you're here today. You haven't been in church in a long time, but God brought you to this room this morning to hear this, is that he's for you. He wants to make himself known to you. Have you seen him? And have you seen him as beautiful? It's not that he's not beautiful. It's not that he's not showing himself. He shows himself in his word. He shows himself in the gospel. He shows himself in the church. All of creation is shouting how good he is. But have you seen it? Are you looking? Do you have eyes to see it? That's what I'm asking that God would do uh, here. The problem is that we would rather gaze at everything else. We're not convinced that he's worth it. And if we're not convinced that he's worth it, church, listen, it's because we're not looking at him. So it's not try harder. It's somehow figure out how to stare at him. Because when you stare at him, like listen, no one has to tell me that when I look at my wife to think she's beautiful. Right? That's what happens with beauty. When you see beauty, you respond to it. You don't have to tell yourself to respond. You just do. When you see something that's weighty, like glorious, uh, let's even make a, a, a much lesser example. You even watch I mean, NBA Finals, anybody? You watch somebody, like a LeBron James is just awesome at what he does. I know it's a really tried example. But listen, you watch that and you're just in awe. Like, how did he do that? that, that you're ascribing weight to that thing. You're worshiping that thing in that moment. Say, man, that's beautiful. No one has to tell you to do that. You just are, you respond when you see beauty. So if you're not responding, it has to be true that you're not seeing. It has to be true. If God is infinitely valuable, the only response when he is seen is infinite joy and infinite sacrifice. It's the only thing that makes sense. This is illustrated in Romans chapter 11. I want us to read this together. Words will be on the screen. It says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. See what he says? That To Him be glory. To Him be weight. Why? In response to everything that we just saw about Him. And this is true uh, back in 1 Kings chapter 8. I want us to read through really quickly. We'll we'll close with this idea, okay? I want us to look and see our God. So I want to go back to 1 Kings chapter 8. What we're going to see is Solomon's prayer of dedication back at the temple. And I want us to pull some principles of what he's praising God and His attributes for. Because for Solomon, it was much more than a building. This temple reflected who God was. And so I want to read these to us. So I'll move through these very quickly. 
1 Kings chapter 8, verse 15, the words will be on the screen. We see that God is faithful. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father. It's a beautiful promise. We're going to run through these real quick. But listen, you need to know, look and see God. Well, who is he? I want to, I want to see him this morning. I want my heart to be stirred. Well, see that he is faithful. If he says it, he will do it. If he says it, he will do it. It's the goodness of God. It's the kindness of God. that He's for you. He's made promises for you, and he will keep those promises. Verse 23, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. You know what Solomon's saying? God, you are holy. See him. He's holy. You know what holy means? We say it in the church all the time. It is that he is completely separate. He's distinct. He's utterly different. He's not just better than us. He is in a class all by himself. There's no one like your God. Look and see him. He's separate in, listen, he's all-knowing. Listen, listen to your God this morning. He knows all things possible and actual. He knows all things as they are and all things that they would be if you would have responded differently. That's how big our God is. He's all-knowing. He has divine wisdom. Listen, that because of his divine knowledge, that he knows everything actual and possible, that he accomplishes his perfect end in your life. Wisdom is the application of what we know, right? How to live. And that God is so wise that he's moving history around to accomplish his purpose in your life. And it will be to the best end possible. Do you trust him in that? Do you see him as that? That our God is holy and he is all-powerful. No one else is like that. You're not all-powerful. I'm not all-powerful. You can't control your life. But our God is all-powerful. He is able to do anything. When's the last time you were in awe of that? Anything that is consistent with his nature of being God. He is sovereign over all things. That Listen, there's nothing that that happens on this world that is not being controlled by the hand of our God. That he plans and carries out his will in this world. Nothing can thwart his plan. That's our God. He's self-sufficient. Listen, God himself, he possesses in himself every quality in infinite measure. Everything that we're not, everything that we're striving to be, listen, God is that in himself in infinite measure. He has no needs. And so when we say worship him, we're not saying God's lonely, that he needs our guitars and our, our music and he needs our lives. That is not what we're saying. That he is infinite by himself. He's self-sufficient. Our God is self-existent. It's, it's impossible for God not to be. There's never been a moment when God wasn't. I want you to think about that. That should send us to awe. That's who our God is. Verse 23b and 24 says that God is constant. Read, read this with me. It says, He's keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you have declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand. You have fulfilled it to this day. You know what he's saying? He's like, what you promised thousands of years ago, you're still doing. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God cannot change. Isn't that good news? In a world that's changing, our hearts are changing, that God is constant. He has always been, He always will be. We can trust Him. Verse 27 says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. Solomon acknowledged that God is everywhere present. That God is infinite. Listen, do you know that our God has no boundaries? 
There's no limit to his love for you. There's no limit for his power in your life. There's nothing that can contain him. He doesn't live in this building. He doesn't need us. He's boundless. That is our God. Verse 28 says, You have regarded the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day. You know what he says? Listen, that God's not just infinite, lofty out there, that's boundless, but that God is near. That this infinite God chooses to listen to you when you pray to him. He cares about your hurt. He cares about your need this morning. That's our God. But how can we be near to him? Because the next verse, verse 31, says this. If a man sins, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. That God is just. Because he's holy, because he's righteous, he must punish things that are contrary to him. That's a good thing. He's just. But he's not just just. He's not just angry at sin. Notice, this is the last one. God is merciful and forgiving. Verse 33, not only will they hear and he will punish sin, but if we will call out, look at the response. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to your fathers that God is abounding in steadfast love he longs to forgive you it's our God look at him as he actually is he longs for you to see him that way there's no way we can we can't exhaust the measure of who he is but I just wanted to see a picture of that and listen when we see that we must respond so what are you going to say this morning that that God in all of his glory, and he's just completely different than us, and he's worthy of our praise, that we're just going to go, meh, I don't think that it's worth my life. I'm going to kind of live life my own way, because I think I know better. I want to keep control of my life, because I think I can do better with my life than that God. No, no, no. If we see him, we should come away and say, God, whatever. All that I have is yours. All that I have. And that was their response in verse 60. It says, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Verse 61, let your heart therefore, in light of all of this, be wholly true to the Lord our God. Walking in His statutes and keeping His commandments as at this day. See Him and we say, God, let my heart be wholly yours. I'll sacrifice in response to the revelation of who you are. She said, okay, I get it. Well, how? Still, like, I, I see that, but how does this happen? How do I live a life of worship? How do I go out of this room and respond accurately to him? Because we're about to have a response song. But listen, our response is more than a song. It's a lifestyle. Because I want us to read this one last verse. We're not going to unpack this. I want us to, this to be what we leave out on. Romans 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Remember, we just read Romans 11, the end of that. That to Him be the glory forever. So in light of that, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So the temple, they were killing animals. It was a dead sacrifice. But he said, no, no, no. I want you to be a living sacrifice. I want you to lay down your life in such a way, but you're still going to move. You're still going to live life. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
You say, well, how do I worship God? How do I respond rightly? Is you lay down everything. You say, every part of who I am is yours. I'm a living sacrifice. You say, well, how do I do that? What does it mean to lay down my life, Derek? Listen to verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. You know why? Because the world says there's things more beautiful than God. So don't be poured into the same mold as this world system. But be transformed. That word's metamorphosis, like a little butterfly from a cocoon. It's completely different than what it was before. Be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. This is how we worship. This is how we respond to God. By the renewal of our mind, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know what Paul's saying to us? If you want to really worship, if you want to really respond, you've got to see Him. How do we see Him? By the renewal of our minds. So how's your mind this morning? You say, how do I get my mind renewed? It's by this word. It's by walking with Him, gazing at Him all day. Don't go all week without meditating deeply on who God is because if you continually renew your mind and not be poured into the mold of this world, but say, God, I want you to transform my mind. I want it to be brand new and I want to continually renew my mind. And it says what is to prove and, and discern what is good and perfect and acceptable. You know what that means? Prove is, I see the evidence. Hang with me. I see the evidence. But discern is, I see that evidence to be what it actually is. So it's not just enough, listen, to say that God is joy. I don't know that anybody in this room, very few of us, would disagree with that statement. But have you tasted it? Have you experienced that He's joy? It's not just enough to say God is holy. All these things we just read, you can know those things in your mind. What Paul is saying, we need a renewal of mind that we can not just see the right things and say that is truth, but take that truth and say, no, 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 that is good, and that is the lie, and that is everything. And it's a daily fight to renew our minds to gaze at God as He actually is. If you're lazy and refuse to think about God, you will never be a worshiper. And he says to lay down your life as a living sacrifice. So when our minds are transformed to see God for who he is, guess what? It changes the way you view everything. And then, listen, all of life becomes worship. That you actually begin to lay down your life and say, I want to live for your glory, your weightiness, your worth. I want the way I do relationships, the way I use my money, the way I do spend all of my time is to show the world who you are. That's worship. Every aspect of life surrendered and in a response to the greatness of who God is, but you've got to fight to dwell. You've got to see Him. You've got to see Him. Bow your head and close your eyes, guys. We'll end in a time of worship. The team will come on up. I want you to see our God. Look and see Him. See Him for who He is. But I want us to, we're Christians in here, okay? We're about Jesus. And so how does Jesus fit in all of this? We're talking about the temple and all that that means, and all that that is. I want, us to, I want you to hear this. Jesus is the true temple. The way that we can worship God rightly, the way that we can experience the presence of God on display, the way that we see His power is in Jesus. Paul says that we can see, listen, the glory of God in the face of Jesus. All of the weightiness, all of the worth, all of the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he was here, he said, I am the temple of God. Something even better than the temple is here. Because I'm here. God himself in the flesh. The presence of God. Jesus is the temple that was broken. Jesus is the sacrifice slain 
to allow us to worship God. Hebrews says that Jesus is not just the temple, but He's the sacrifice. He's the way that you can be restored to worship Him. He's the way that we see God. Listen, that Jesus took your place. He's the high priest who entered in to offer up his, his blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, but His blood so that you could be made right with Him. All of your sins washed away and a righteousness given to you as a free gift so that we can be restored to see God for who He is, to enjoy that and live our lives, worshiping Him every day. It's only in Jesus. He is this temple and He is the sacrifice. And because of who He is, listen church, we are the temple of God. I want us to read this. I want to read this over us before we sing. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So no longer do we need a temple to gather together, this house that was built. Those days are over because Jesus came as the real temple. Listen, we are now the temple of God. You are a stone being built to display the glory of who he is to the world, to be a holy priesthood. This is you. This is me if you are in Jesus. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. How do we do that? Through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are the temple of God. Listen, we can worship rightly. So I want to tell us all, Come now, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Great is our God, and so greatly is He to be praised. Because He is everything, we give everything to see Him known among the nations. So we're going to sing this over. Let this be our cry to say, God, You are worth my life. Let's sing this together.